Welcome to this episode of When Science Makes History. My wife and I are sitting in a coffee shop enjoying an eggnog latte as I formulate the basic outline of the upcoming episode of the podcast, which is the one you are now listening to. I'm in Stove's Coffee Shop in Columbus, Ohio, and I must say the coffee is excellent. From the first Arabian coffee houses of the 1500s to the coffee houses of England and early America, these houses of political and religious discourse have shaped many a nation's political histories. While everyone around me is busy typing, talking, or tuning out the room around them, the original coffee shop would have been much rowdier as political ideas and opinions were bantered about, generating no small controversy, which in many cases saw legal authorities stepping in to close these establishments. The whole topic of coffee will be another podcast episode, but the reason we all, well, most of us drink coffee is for the powerful molecule wrapped up in these warm beverages, caffeine. Even if you're not allured by the aroma of a cup of coffee, 93% of Americans imbibe this molecule by way of sodas, tea, energy drinks, and even by caffeine-laden candies. So grab a cup of your favorite caffeinated beverage, sit back, and enjoy this episode of When Science Makes History as we cover 137-trimethylxanthine, the compound we recognize as caffeine. Welcome back to this episode on caffeine. I do apologize for not crafting a more creative title, but caffeine is the topic of this episode, so caffeine will be our title. Caffeine is an interesting molecule that is a water-soluble plant alkaloid, and while that's a mouthful to say, it's actually pretty easy to understand. A plant alkaloid is a nitrogen-based molecule produced by plants as sort of a self-defense mechanism, a phytochemical. Previously, we've covered nicotine from the tobacco plant, which tobacco plants produce as a natural insecticide to protect themselves. There are thousands of other plant-based alkaloids bearing similar naming structures, which you will no doubt catch. Nicotine from tobacco, quinine from cinchona, morphine from opium poppies, atropine from the belladonna, and yes, caffeine from a variety of plants. Because humans have harvested these molecules and used them pharmacologically, we tend to get this backwards. Plants do not produce these molecules for humans, they produce them for self-preservation, and we merely piggyback on the benefit of these in human physiology. Not all are helpful to humans. For example, another molecule, strychnine, comes from a tree bearing the same name. The strychnine tree has pretty orange-red pear-shaped fruits which, while appearing tempting to eat, smell quite foul and have a toxin inside to ward off predators. Strychnine is a powerful poison that can cause respiratory failure and subsequent death but we've digressed. Getting back to caffeine, we note that these plant-based molecules are also water-soluble, meaning they can be mixed with hot water and the alkaloid can be leached out, making a drink. We recognize this process in steeping tea leaves to produce the drink we call tea, and the drink served in coffee shops, coffee, goes without explanation in our culture. Most, however, don't merely settle for a simple water and coffee infusion when the choices of an Americano, latte, mocha, and cappuccino are readily available. Whatever name it goes by, cup of joe, nectar of the gods, liquid sunshine, java, or just brew, the mechanism of ingestion seems less important than getting that alkaloid molecule of caffeine into our blood system and to our brain and other organs. So, what exactly does coffee do? More specifically, what does caffeine in the coffee do? 
Well, caffeine is a psychoactive compound, which means it basically has psyche or mind-altering effects as well as physiological effects, hence psychoactive. Once we ingest caffeine, it is absorbed through our small intestines where it enters our bloodstream and since it's water-soluble and also fat-soluble, it can cross the blood-brain barrier and enter our brain. Once entering the brain, the mind-altering effects provide a sense of alertness, a sense of focus, and mental energy that are perceived as being helpful. Physiologically, it's a central nervous stimulant, which means it makes our heart rate increase, increases blood pressure, and increases urine output along with a host of other actions in our bodies. We don't mind these effects because it's also providing a subtle caffeine buzz, and if taken in appropriate quantities, we think that feels good. So, all in all, we have a water-soluble, natural, plant-based molecule that can be ingested easily, which makes us alert, focused, and energized. What could be wrong with that? Well, honestly, not much. There have been countless studies seeking the deleterious effects of caffeine consumption. Providing it is taken in appropriate doses, there really have not been substantive research-validated studies on the ill effect of caffeine and human consumption. To quote Penny Le Couture, quote, Numerous studies have looked for possible negative side effects of caffeine, including its relationship to various forms of cancer, heart disease, osteoporosis, ulcers, liver disease, premenstrual syndrome, kidney disease, sperm motility, fertility, fetal development, hyperactivity, athletic performance, and mental dysfunction. So far, there is no clear evidence that any of these can be linked to moderate amounts of caffeine consumption, end quote. Granted, as the adage goes, the dose makes the poison, so too much caffeine is indeed toxic. Before we get to the mode of action, there are actually some health benefits associated with caffeine. It has been used to relieve asthma, as it is a bronchodilator, meaning it dilates the bronchial passageways. It can be used to prevent migraines and is even added to some aspirins, which we've focused on in earlier episodes, and can even increase the body's ability to burn fat. Some studies even indicate there's a connection between coffee consumption and decreased onset of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Now, just as there is not overwhelming research about the negative side effects, there's also not an abundance on the other side showing the health benefits. So let's just leave it as a neutral for now. Let's get back to the mode of action for caffeine. What does it do inside of us? Well, we tend to think caffeine keeps us awake, which is partially correct. Not to get overly picky on terminology, but it doesn't really keep us awake as much as it prevents us from sleeping. Those are two different entities. Maybe this will make sense. If you've ever had to do an all-nighter, whether a teen group staying up all night or a long drive through the night where you're amped up on caffeine drinks beforehand, we all recall that feeling around 2 in the morning. We feel horrible and want to do nothing but go to sleep, but we can't. Physically, we're done. Mentally, we're done. We want to sleep, but we cannot. It's a terrible feeling. That is what caffeine does. It blocks the receptors that say, go to sleep. You see, our bodies produce and utilize a compound called adenosine. We probably recall a compound in our high school biology classes called ATP or adenosine triphosphate, the energy molecule. That's the one we're talking about. It is also a nucleotide base found in the key DNA letters we are familiar with in the C, A, T, and G of our genetic code. It's obviously the A for adenine, and when combined with the sugar, forms adenosine. Anyhow, we produce adenosine for a purpose called signal transduction. It helps relay and communicate signals. 
Adenosine aids in the signal transduction process as it is a communicator of calm, sleep-inducing hypnotic peace. This is good communication. As we wind down the day, our internal clocks communicate it's time to go to sleep, time to chill, time to be at peace. This is called sleep pressure. So, adenosine induces sleep pressure by connecting to the appropriate nerve endings which transduce the signal further and we go to sleep. That is when all's working according to plan. Our adenosine levels rise over the course of a day, which is why we tend to feel sleepier later in the day. That, along with the physical exhaustion from working, the sun setting, and dusk arriving, serve as symbols that our body interprets through adenosine that it is time to go to sleep. Caffeine is evil in the sense that its shape allows it to fit into the same little nerve endings as adenosine, thereby blocking the ability of adenosine to send the sleep signal. So, even though we're physically exhausted, wanting to sleep, the sun is set, our pillow looks ever so inviting, the chemical pathway to sleep has been blocked by a caffeine molecule sitting in the way. Caffeine is a broken rail on the train of sleep. The train wants to go, but the rail is broken and it can't travel down the tracks to sleep. That describes the two in the morning feeling of wanting to go to sleep, but we simply cannot until the caffeine has worked its way out of our system, thereby opening the receptors again for adenosine. If you ever recall a time when a late night cup of coffee kept you awake until two in the morning, you know the feeling. It's not pleasant. However, the aroma of a brewing cup of coffee also entices us out of bed following a good night's sleep. And that feeling just cannot be beaten. While research shows it can enhance alertness, prevent sleep, and increase the ability to complete tasks cognitively, it only does so to a point. Taking caffeine to step up your game and increase your performance on a task late at night is effective, but only to a point. College students are famous for pulling the all-nighter to finish an assignment, but admittedly, the ability to perform adequately decreases each hour and caffeine cannot help the level of focus to that extreme. Playing around with sleep quality is kind of dangerous. Interfering with one of the most essential activities is not a good idea and it's not coincidental that fitness trackers monitor sleep quality. Your sleep quality is vital to good health and to mental well-being. So if caffeine interrupts this sleep quality, it will have negative effects. To that end, there are also countless research studies that are helpful in showing the wisdom of carefully regulating caffeine consumption so as to not interrupt the quality of sleep, with some indicating that actually no caffeine is the safe amount of caffeine. We'll leave that for your own personal consideration, but interestingly, most conversations surrounding caffeine consumption seem to stem back to the topic of addiction. What about caffeine addiction? Caffeine's a nootropic, meaning it's a natural supplement that is expected to enhance cognitive function, yet different amounts affect different people differently. It is not always the same for each person, in other words. That is the problem with defining addiction to caffeine. Experts have a tough time defining caffeine addiction, and the American Psychological Association, the APA, does not recognize caffeine as a substance abuse disorder. However, it does classify problematic caffeine consumption and lists a series of behaviors and effects of too much caffeine. So medically, caffeine addiction is not a diagnosis. Some folks will swear they're not addicted and can increase or decrease caffeine consumption at will, while others readily admit addiction and cannot go a couple of hours without a coffee or soda. Again, the dose makes the difference, as does individual human tolerances. When we come back, we'll look at caffeine in the workplace. 
If it's so good at keeping us alert, we should mandate it for all employees in the workplace, right? Well, maybe not. Hey, listeners, just a quick word of thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of When Science Makes History. I trust you're enjoying these podcasts and they're filling you in on the unique connections that science, serendipity, and history all have in common. While I'm not a fan of social media, I do recognize the importance that these platforms have on sharing podcasts such as this. So please like us on Instagram and be sure to tell your friends about this podcast. When Science Makes History can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the topics that we are covering. Welcome back to this episode on caffeine. For years, coffee was relegated to the coffee shops and less to the workplace until the 1920s when scientific studies began to inquire as to whether caffeine boosted workplace efficiency by making more alert and focused employees. Today, that is just an accepted norm. In appropriate doses, caffeine can boost workplace focus and efficiency, but as with anything, there are trade-offs. Today, we're probably more likely guilty of over-caffeination at work in efforts to offset late nights either working, watching TV, partying, or gaming. By the 1950s, the institution of the coffee break was pretty well solidified. Without going into too much history, it started with two companies in Buffalo, New York, providing coffee and breaks in which to drink the coffee for its employees. Companies began providing a room and the actual coffee for their employees to boost their effectiveness all through caffeine consumption. Today's 15-minute breaks can actually trace their history back to employers looking to caffeinate their employees in efforts to boost workplace efficiency. One wonders that if a caffeine patch were available at the time, companies would have simply stuck one on each employee in lieu of giving up the 15 minutes each morning and afternoon for the well-established coffee break. Anyhow. Originally, caffeine was believed to give energy without calories, making a seeming energy paradox and a potential supplement for dieting. Looking around the workplace today, we all recognize it is not merely the communal office coffee pot we're talking about, with energy drinks, tea, and soda also being used to provide this molecule and are actually now competing in quantities of consumption. Here's some interesting data from a well-executed research study reported in March of 2022. Coffee now actually ranks second as the vehicle of choice for imbibing caffeine as soft drinks edged it out, making coffee second and tea third. Interestingly, a mere 7% of Americans are in the caffeine-free category, while another 6% are on the other extreme as they straight-up ingest caffeine in tablet form. There really is no difference in gender consumption, that is, who consumes more caffeine, men or women, it's about equal. Caffeine does tend to favor the young and increasingly progresses with age and reduces in old age. That makes sense. There's an abundance of data and literature on caffeine usage, giving it the moniker of the most unregulated, most overstudied, experimental drug in history. Caffeine consumption by way of coffee and tea was historically an adult experience. In the early 1900s, however, children were now able to partake through the advent of caffeinated soft drinks, none of which was more famous than Coca-Cola. At that time, a Dr. Harvey Wiley, who helped usher in legislation such as the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, sought to undo this behavior by taking on the Coca-Cola company's scandalous behavior of promulgating this drug to the youth of America. Cartoon caricatures show him warning the public of the dangers of a larger-than-life glass of Coca-Cola in which goblins of nervousness, habit, and indigestion swim about. 
Interestingly, Wiley also had a group of 12 healthy young folks who were his guinea pigs. He dubbed them the Poison Squad, and these volunteers regularly tested the safety of a variety of food products and additives. Seems crazy to think about in today's risk-averse culture. Long story short, his efforts to ban carbonated soft drinks with caffeine aimed at children failed, which is obvious as one simply has to look around the grocery store aisles to see caffeinated products aimed at all ages. In wrapping up this episode, let's consider human dosing. If the dose indeed does make the poison, what are the appropriate dosage levels? The accepted dosage, if you will, for a human caffeine consumption per the Mayo Clinic is about 400 milligrams per day. Okay, what does that equate to? Well, about four cups of coffee, or 10 cans of soda, or just two energy drinks. Mind you, not all at once, and this is certainly not a prescribed dietary plan. If one feels they are addicted, the first suggestion is to start keeping track of your caffeine consumption and begin tapering back. Or you could just switch to decaf coffee and drinks, but what's the fun in that? In closing, I would suggest reading Michael Pollan's work entitled This Is Your Mind on Plants, where he covers his own experimental self-induced caffeine withdrawal and his subsequent reinstatement. It's a worthwhile read on caffeine and its effect on humans. So, there we have it. Caffeine, coffee breaks, Coca-Cola, sleep cycles, and coffee houses on this episode of When Science Makes History. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you for following me on Instagram and promoting this podcast.